All right, Alexander, let's do an update as to what is happening in Ukraine. We have a bunch of uh, articles that we can talk about that came out from uh, Collective West mainstream media. We could talk about the, the uh, big counteroffensive, and I guess one of the big uh, points that we can discuss is the, the three villages in this gray zone, this gray area that uh, Ukraine has claimed to have captured. And I've heard reports that Russia has captured one of those villages, abandoned, abandoned villages in the gray area, in, in this gray zone on this, this front line uh, area that's, that's referred to as the ledge, the ledge of the front line, because it kind of sticks out from, from the rest of the front line. And, um, and that's, I, I think that's, the, those are the big stories, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I'm trying story. to figure out what, what, what else, yeah. what else is there? The weather conditions are, are, are bad. And I think that's caused a little bit of, of a lull in, in activity, not much, but it definitely seems like the Russian uh, drones and aviation had to pause for for a day, and it looks like Ukraine might have taken a bit of an advantage there. But we always have to talk about the fact that this is the gray area. This is the area that there's meant to be a lot of back and forth. The fact that Ukraine has still, after eight days, not been able to get to a first line of defense, which is about like 20 kilometers out from from this uh, gray gray area is is quite telling, I think. Uh, what, what what do you see going on? How do you see no, things? I agree. With, I agree with your summary completely. I think the the thing to explain is this. First of all, there's the big fortified lines that Russia created. There's been a good article actually in of all places, the Daily Telegraph about those. They're thirty kilometers deep. They are incredibly heavily fortified trenches, fortifications, minefields, dragon's teeth, every conceivable thing that you can imagine. They are well to the south of this area. Then there is a fortified line to the north. When you say fortified, it's much more lightly fortified and more lightly defended. And then there is, if you like, this area just, ahead, just north of this fortified line, which the Russians and the Ukrainians refer to it as the grey zone. It's not quite the same as no man's land, because this is a more mobile war than the First World War was. It's not just trenches facing off against each other. So, But it's this area which is contested. It's contested territory. And what happened, if we just go back a couple of months to January, you may remember that there was a big Russian advance, or it looked like it was a big Russian advance, towards this Ukrainian town of Orekhov. And there's a lot of people, like myself to some extent, thought this might be the start of a Russian winter offensive. Except it wasn't. And it was a rather mysterious episode in some ways. But I think we now have the answer. Because what happened was that the Russians occupied a lot of this territory, which, as I said, had been contested, against rather thin Ukrainian opposition. They used the, op they used the time to create these very dense minefields and also to establish control of various fortified positions. And they also, I think it's now clear, I mean, these villages that are being talked about, I mean, they're completely deserted. So at some time over the, over the, over the course of this process, 
um, the people were told to leave. And in fact, if you remember, again, a couple of weeks ago, the Russians were evacuating people from this northern area. So the villages are empty of people. And one of these villages that's been talked about is not even a village. It's actually a, a couple of farm buildings. <laughs> it's been referred to as a village, but it's probably never had more than a five or six inhabitants, you know, a family of people perhaps, um, occupying it. So this is, this is the sort of very forward-controlled area that the Russians occupied in January where they built these advanced fortifications ahead of their main fortified line to the south. But that fortified line itself is rather thin the really big fortifications, the really massive fortifications, are well to the south of that as well. So you could see what the Russians have done. They've created a very complex defence system in which you have a sort of grey zone, a lightly defended front line, and then a really heavily defended front line below that. And as you absolutely rightly say, Ukraine has spent eight days trying to get through the grey zone. In other words, try to reach the first proper fortified line that the um, Russians have, and they haven't, so far as I can see, broken through anywhere. Now, over the last 36, 48 hours, there was a lot of rain um, in this part of the world, in Zaporozhye and southern Donetsk region. Now, this had two effects. On the one hand, it prevented Ukraine launching big, heavy, mechanised attacks on most of the front line. But it also had the effect that it meant it made it very difficult for the Russians to send their drones into the skies to keep track of what Ukrainian forces were doing. And that created blind spots. And it also made it more difficult for Russian helicopters to operate. I mean, Russian helico uh, helicopters are not ideal aircraft for using in heavy rain. So the result was that the Ukrainians were able to launch a rather, from what I can understand, the numbers of troops involved is not big. We're talking about perhaps a couple of hundred men. Anyway, they were able to move up a road along this ledge, capture these three completely deserted villages. And of course, this was supposedly the first achievement that they had over the course of this um, offensive. And I would say it wasn't quite as straightforward as that because there was some to and fro. There were Russian counterattacks over the day yesterday. Apparently one of those villages was briefly recaptured by the Russians. The Ukrainians then pushed back and captured it again. And the latest word that I've heard is that the weather has now cleared Russian artillery and helicopters are back in operation and that there is an actual significant Russian counterattack in this very same area underway and that at least one of those villages has now been recaptured by the Russians. So this is the kind... I mean, you know, we are perhaps spending too much time discussing this it's because, uh, you know, these, these, these are minor skirmishes involving relatively small numbers of troops. But we are 
pushed into doing it because, of course, the media is covering it. Because, of course, in the West, it's the first proof that Ukraine is gaining ground. Amongst the Russians, the Russian telegram communities, which we, you know, follow. I mean, it's activity on the front line, so they have to cover that activity in order to basically justify their existence. But in in fact, these these are skirmishes. They don't, in my opinion fundamentally changed the overall picture, which is that this Ukrainian offensive um, has hit a standstill. There were very heavy Ukrainian attacks over the first four days. Those suffered very heavy losses. The British Ministry of Defence today is disputing the extent of these losses, but they were very heavy. There is no doubt about that. Um, They lost an awful lot of equipment. I mean... I mean, I, I've lost count now of the number of Leopard 2 tanks that were destro- destroyed, but we're talking, well, you know, between a dozen and a score. And remember, there were only 60 of these to start with. So, I mean, this is a significant proportion of the um, Western-supplied tank force. We've seen lots of Bradley infantry fighting vehicles destroyed. Again, I've lost count of the number, but, you know, we're looking at perhaps a dozen there. Uh, out of the hundred that were originally supplied, and so this was this didn't go well for Ukraine, and uh, Zelensky has now sort of confirmed or not confirmed that the offensive is underway. He says that there's counterattacks in some areas, defensive actions in others. Some people are seeing that as a confirmation of the offensive. I wouldn't really say so. I mean, you know, they've not really made a public announcement saying that the offensive itself is underway. But that there is a report which says that Zelensky has told his officials these are, we'll treat all of these attacks that have happened before as just probing raids and, you know, a big attack is going to come in the second half of June. Now, I have to stress one quick last thing. This is all happening along the Zaporozhye lines. Um, there's been many Ukrainian attacks in lots of other places. It looks to me as if Ukraine has been trying to repeat what it did in the autumn, when, if you remember, it ta- attacked in two directions simultaneously, one in Kherson region, the other in Kharkov region. It's perhaps hoping that the Russians have concentrated an excessive number of their troops in the south and left open gaps in Donbass and elsewhere that the Ukrainians can exploit. But so far, all of those attacks, which have been quite heavy, I mean, comparable in scale, certainly to the ones in Zaporozhye, all of those attacks have been repelled with heavy losses. So one gets the sense that there's a much bigger Russian army, far better encrypted, much more heavily entrenched, and it's repelling all the Ukrainian attacks all along the line of contact. Yeah, I will say that uh, this this counteroffensive is operating under the premise that the Russian military is weak and the Russian military will retreat at the first sign of any type of, uh, of Ukrainian, I, don't, I won't even say advance, any Ukraine military presence this counteroffensive is operating on the fact that Russians are going to be scared if they even see one, uh, one Ukraine tank or one Bradley vehicle, and they're just going to run away. 
I'm exaggerating this, obviously, but that is the general premise that I believe the political class in the collective West are operating under. And I mean, the Biden White House and EU officials. And that is what I am seeing reported on by most of the collective West media, which is that officials in the West continue to believe that Russia is out of weapons, out of missiles, low morale, and is is a second or third rate military. Yes. I mean, they have really bought into in, into this narrative. Yes. And, and that's, that, that's what I see uh, going on. And my question to you, based on this, this assumption that they're making, is that the Alensky regime has one month to show some sort of territorial gains. And the New York Times even read an article talking about the counteroffensive, and they said that uh, the, the collective West will consider this a success, a successful counteroffensive, even if Ukraine makes incremental gains. However incremental, they say, the gains are, they'll consider it a success. And then in the NATO meeting in the middle of July, they can move to the next stage of the war, which is security guarantees. I mean, we're looking, we're looking at three to four weeks for them to gain something, however small, a small town, a, a, small, vill, a, a small city, so that they can go to NATO in the middle of July and get more money and more weapons. I mean, is that correct? Is that how you're seeing things? If they don't get something that they can package as, as a victory, then the NATO meeting is going to be very, very tense. I completely agree. Now, can I just say, I think you're absolutely right about the first point. I think they've got this idea, they've developed this idea over the, as a result of the events of last year, that the Russian military is corrupt, disorganized, inefficient, badly managed, badly led, uh, um, and all the rest. And what has, I think, led to that is that they believed a lot of their own mythology about some of the events that took place last year. You remember there was the siege of Kiev, the siege of Kiev, the successful siege of Kiev. Uh, then there was the Kharkov counteroffensive. Then there was the eventual pullout from Kherson. All of these were seen as, you know, examples of you know Russians tailing, turning tail and running. And this was against the Ukrainian military that was much more supposedly much more lightly equipped than um, it is today. At least it didn't have the Western weapons that it does today. And so the assumption was, yes, I mean, you know, when Ukraine is on the back foot, when the Russians are advancing, yes, it's grinding down, it suffers heavy losses because the Russians hide behind their artillery. But when it comes to actual offensives by Ukraine, the Russians pull back and roll over and run away. And if you remember, there were all those articles that appeared, well, going back weeks now, about how Ukraine needed to achieve its breakthrough in the first 24 hours, that the way that it would happen would be if the Russian leadership became paralysed with panic and if the troops fled. And you could see that that was the operative assumption. There's also been, I think, on the part of some people, an entrenched belief that the Russian military are running short of ammunition, that they don't have artillery shells. You know, it's impossible to believe that they can produce artillery at greater rates than the West, West can, even though apparently 
their own intelligence now is telling them a completely different story. Now, I don't want to revisit all those events, Kiev, Kharkov, Kherson. We discussed them extensively at the time. In the case of the Kiev affair, they weren't, the Russians weren't, clearly weren't trying to capture Kiev, and they say that uh, they withdrew their troops from around Kiev because they thought a diplomatic breakthrough had been achieved. And the fact is they withdrew their troops in good order, and right up until about a week before they withdrew those troops from Kiev, as I remember, they were actually gaining ground. They actually captured an important town where people had been evacuated to after the Chernobyl accident back in the 1980s. So, you know, th that's the Kiev business. The Kharkov affair was more dismal. But the reason that happened was because the Russians had already, before the offensive took place, pulled out most of their troops from Kharkov, and we were only talking about two or 3,000 men there against a Ukrainian force that was multiples greater. And Kherson, the Russians withdrew from because of supply issues and because I think that General Surovikin took the view that it was a waste of effort to keep these elite troops fighting in Kherson region week after week month after month isolated from the rest of the war he took the view that he needed to shorten the, the, the front lines and as was said at the time there were worries that ukraine might blow the karkovka the novaya karkovka dam which of course has now happened so i mean that 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 is that is the story of those three things but i think it became internalized in the west everybody is patting themselves on the back saying these are great victories um, ukraine can repeat these victories there's a sort of general belief that things are worse on the russian front than they actually are and you're absolutely right that was the predicate upon which these attacks have been made now i also agree with you that a month six weeks maybe is the longest time that this can be sustained if they haven't made significant progress um, within that period of six weeks then i mean you can basically write off this offensive as a military operation but of course the politics are different because if they do as you correctly said gain some slivers of territory a small town a village a couple of villages whatever claim that they're making progress, then we come back to that program, which we did a few days ago, about, you know, the plans to commit troops from Eastern Europe, all of those things. And you can see very easily how that all fits in to the security guarantees. The idea is you grant Ukraine security, you give Ukraine security guarantees. You don't include it in NATO because, of course, Lots of countries in NATO apparently are not keen on that idea. So that idea has been sort of put back a little. After the war, we might revisit it. For the moment, we may not revisit. So we, we go for, the, in for these security guarantees and we use these security guarantees as the passport to get the East Europeans to send their troops into Ukraine. Now, the problem with that is that this is not apparently very popular with people in Eastern Europe. I mean, Mrs. Kalas, who was the Estonian Prime Minister, didn't seem particularly keen on that idea at all. 
And I've just seen an opinion poll in Poland which puts popular support in Poland for Poland actually entering the war in that kind of way at around zero. But neocons never worry too much about that sort of thing. If they can lean on the governments of these countries to do it, they will do everything they can. And of course, if they can say at the summit, the Vilnius summit meeting, well, you see, Ukraine is making some progress. It's obviously not enough, but soon you'll have your F-16s there and all they need is some more ground troops and all it will take is one more heave, one big push and the Russians will roll over. I'm afraid the pattern up to now is that Western leaders always end up agreeing with what the neocons want. Why are the Western leaders so ignorant as to, as to what's going on? Even Western leaders in, in smaller to, to mid-sized EU countries, you know, take a Cyprus or a Greece. Uh, of course, Hungary is the, is the outlier. They're the exception. But across the board in the European Union, all countries from the big powerful ones like Germany and France to the smaller ones like, uh, like Greece or, say, Slovakia, Czech Republic, let's say, they all buy into the, the narrative that we've just outlined about the, the Russian military. I mean, okay, you, you read the Telegraph or you read the BBC and the New York Times and they talk about Russia's running out of weapons and the siege of Kiev, it rolled back. They, always, they like to use the word rolled back the Russian army in the first stages of the words. They love that. They love that term, rolled the Russian army back. Uh, Common sense tells you that that's ridiculous. I mean, 40,000 troops taking over a city of 2 million, that's ridiculous. Uh, you know, the, I guess my question to you is, you, you would think that these administrations are staffed with people, okay, that read mainstream media, but you would imagine that they read Twitter and Telegram channels from both sides, pro-Ukraine and pro-Russian, as they're trying to formulate some sort of... Uh, picture as to the realities of the war. And if you go to, to telegram channels like uh, Slavyangrad, which, which is pro-Russian, but does a very good job in reporting things from a balanced point of view, even, even they, they report when things are going bad for, for Russia as well. Uh, you know, you, if you just go to one source like that, you get a very clear picture yes. Yes. As, to, as, as to what's happening. Yes. Why don't the administrations of these of, of these countries just, you know, look at, look, look at the both sides as to how things are being reported and, and go back to their prime ministers or their presidents and say, look, you know, you're going to be going to, to Vilnius soon, Mr. Prime Minister or Miss Prime Minister. Yes, they're saying that Ukraine is winning, but I'm going to these channels and I don't know. It doesn't look like these three villages are really villages at all. And it doesn't look like they're that important. And we're eight days into this. And I'm seeing all kinds of photos of burnt leopards and Bradleys. And this is not looking so good. So maybe when you go to Vilnius, uh, Miss Prime Minister, you should maybe push back a little bit. I mean, maybe this is a, na a naive question that I'm, that I'm giving you. But I just find it amazing that, that, that here we are and we understand <laughs> what's happening. But the governments of these countries have no clue? Well, uh, first of all, it's not a naive question. In fact, if there is naivety, it is entirely on the other side. Can I just say a few things? First of all, about, you know, channels like Slavyangrad. Absolutely right. I mean, we have 
granular detail about the course of this war, which is greater than on any other war, I think, in human history. I think, I think that's the first thing I want to say. I mean, you have reporters, and they're on both sides, by the way, both the Russian and the Ukrainian, and Slavyankrad is a good place to get both, because they act, to some extent, as a site aggregator, as well as providing their commentary. So you get a lot of Ukrainian material there, too. But anyway, the point is, you, you, you know what's happening in, you know, three little villages. You've never had that kind of detail across a 1,000-kilometre front in any war before. And incredibly, there seems to be no attempt on the Russian side to impose any real censorship about this, which I find very remarkable. It, it's, again, one of the strangest things about this conflict that the Russians, who were historically so secretive and get everything so tight-lipped, they're letting us know everything, about everything, even about their retreats, as you correctly say, with the effect, as I said, that people can perhaps overestimate the importance of the capture of three villages because, you know, it looks like a big battle when, in the scale of things, it might not be. But anyway, that's the first thing to say. There is plenty of information and evidence out there, but there's a number of things to say about Western leaders. The first is, if you're talking about leaders in Europe, the simple fact is that, as we've discussed many times, you're not going to become a part of the political system in the West unless you buy in and accept certain fundamental orthodoxies. That Russia is weak, corrupt, kleptocracy, all of those things, you have to believe it, or at least pretend to. If you start disagreeing like with that, if you start saying, you know, I think this isn't really what's going on, or you, you want to push back against your this, these kind of narratives, you find, you know, the wolves uh, let loose on you. We've seen that with Orban, and so far he's been able to resist it. But, you know, Sebastian Kurz in Austria was brought down, the previous Czech government was brought down. Uh, um, all, all kinds of things like that happen. So you have a very narrow base amongst the Western leaders. They're not open to much discussion. And I don't know if you've watched, I'm sure you have, of course you have, uh, the discussion we had with Claire Daly. But she makes the point, yes, there are plenty of people within the you know, the bureaucracies, the civil services, who would be prepared to provide proper advice to these leaders if they were asked for it. But what they find is that these leaders do not want to hear this advice. They don't want to get this kind of information. They certainly don't want to get information that contradicts their own inbuilt pre-existing assumptions and in some cases they might have certain doubts but they're scared to do it so that's one thing the second is there's the question of where do these leaders get their information from now here i can speak with some experience because as i said i've worked on the fringes of politics my aunt was a politician i've had some contacts with the political system in britain and the overwhelming bulk of the information that politicians get is from the media. And I think this is the important thing again to say. They are provided with 
most of their ideas are shaped by what they read in mainstream media and on television. And this has been terrible. I mean, you know, there's been a video circulating showing a so-called military expert on Sky News casting doubt on whether, you know, some of these pictures of these burning leopard tanks are even real and that kind of thing. So you have that sort of problem. So that's where they get 90% of their news. At the very, very top, they also get their information from the intelligence services. The trouble with that is that the intelligence services themselves, it's become very clear to me now, across the collective West, are now so are now so integrated with each other that I'm afraid they tend to spread the same information. And they don't just spread the same information, but the source of that information, I suspect, overwhelmingly, are the two intelligence services that are seen as the best, which are those of the United States and Britain. And, of course, we know that the intelligence services in the United States and Britain have cer certain fundamental political leanings and presumptions which affects the kind of information they're providing. So I think that there is a predisposition already to believe the worst about Russia and about anything Russian. That is sort of hardwired into all of these people. It wouldn't be there. It wouldn't be where they are if they weren't hardwired already in that way. And the information they're getting probably overwhelmingly reinforces those assumptions and that predisposition which already exists. Let me ask you a question here. Uh, do you think that the Putin government, the Kremlin, actually likes the, likes, prefers, prefers the, the narrative that the Russian military is weak for this conflict? They actually like the fact that the, the enemy, the collective West, is, is underestimating them. And that's why you really don't hear much of a pushback or you don't hear like, I don't know, Shoigu or Lavrov or anybody try to really uh, push back against the siege of Kiev or the Kherson counteroffensive. Maybe they, they actually like the fact that the collective West buys into this, this narrative. Uh, I, I say that because, you know, there's, there, there's always that criticism that, you know, Putin during the first, say, month, month, month and a half of, of the conflict, you know, with the siege of Kiev, I mean, he took a risk. I think it was the right decision. He took a risk to say, you know what, let me try and push Alensky to the negotiating table. So let's do this operation around Kiev, try to push Alensky to sign a, a deal where he pledges Ukraine will not get into NATO, and we avert a much larger conflict. We won't get into what happened. Boris Johnson traveled to Kiev and everything that happened afterwards. Unfortunately, we ended up in a much larger conflict. But he took that risk. And the, the gamble was that the collective West media would change around the, the, the dynamics of, of, of the first month of the war to make it appear like the Russian military was rolled back. The Russian military is weak and... And look, Ukraine has, has delivered a, a devastating blow to the Russian forces that tried to capture Kiev. But it seems like the Russians aren't really, they don't really 
seemed concerned to to push back on that narrative. It it's it looks like they're they're okay with 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 their opponents thinking that they're that they're a weak, incompetent, third-rate military because it seems to be playing into their hands. Yes, well, I think to some extent that's probably true. I think from a military point of view, a military political point of view, if your enemy underestimates you, that is never a bad position to be in. I mean, you can always pull off surprises. You can always... Uh, uh, respond better and of course when you win eventually the effect of that win um, is all the greater because it makes it look like you prevailed against overwhelming odds if you like because you know if the other side say you know use, weak and useless and you nonetheless win well that puts your adversary in a bigger crisis than they would otherwise have been so I think there may be some elements to this uh, but I also have to say this. I think that if you're talking about the collective West, I think Putin and his people are really, to a great extent, past caring about what the West thinks of them. I mean, they've basically wasted, as far as they... I mean, that's their feeling, I think. Wasted 20 years trying to have intelligible, constructive relations with the West. They've explained things to the West any number of times. They've explained the realities about Russia, about the economy, about the global international situation. And I think what they found is that Western leaders, it just washes over them. I mean, they just basically don't listen. So I think that for Putin and his officials, Russian public opinion matters an awful lot. And there I think they do go out of their way now, increasingly, and they're getting better at it to explain what's happening. And we've had regular updates from Shoigu, for example, about the events over the last uh, week or so. And, of course, there is the bigger international audience, China, India, the Global South, uh, the Middle East, Saudi Arabia. There, of course, they're interacting all the time. I mean, Putin just last week spoke with MBS, he spoke with Erdogan, he spoke with all kinds of people in all of these places. So there, I think they are concerned that people get an accurate picture of what is going on. But what the West does, what the West thinks, I think that the Russians feel that the West is so out of touch with reality about Russia already, that the only thing they can realistically do is press forward, do their job in Ukraine, however long it takes, to use that expression, and, uh, you know, wait until they get there, and then, and then we'll see. Because, as I said, explaining things, getting the West to see things differently is a hopeless exercise, and to the extent that at the moment the West is not seeing things differently, plays into Russian hands. Yeah, I mean, you, you can make the argument that the fact that the West continues to buy into these the, the, these narratives, these tropes of of a weak Russian military, Russia running out of missiles, uh, Ukraine rolling back the the Russian forces, the the problem is that the the collective West they they base their escalation on uh, on those uh, beliefs, and as long as the neocons feed those those narratives to the, the the political class of of the collective West, the escalation never really stops. I mean, you just said it, you know, 10, 15 minutes ago that uh, 
that the collective West is going to is is continuously escalating because if you know we're we're so close. Uh, trust me, Russia's military is weak. So one more missile, one more wonder weapon, one more uh, fighter jet, and I know we're going to break through this time. And that's what we've been seeing over the past year and a half. Every single meeting is just just a little bit more money, just a little bit more military aid. Just a new wonder weapon, and that's going to be the end of of the Russian military because they're weak. You know, there's no one in the collective West saying, dude, shut up, shut up, Sullivan, Blinken, Newland, whoever, just be quiet. That's what you told us last time. And look, it's not working. Russia's military is not weak. Russia's economy is not weak. Enough with an 11th sanctions package. Enough. <laughs> We've seen that the first 10 didn't work. Because Russia is not a, a, a gas, uh, is not a country masquerading as a gas station, gas station masquerading as a country, whatever it is. It, it, it's, it's, it's incredible. Ten sanctions packages, and there's not one person to say, uh, hello, everybody. Um, I think Russia's economy is much stronger than any of us were being falsely led to, to believe. I mean, the economic and the military the narrative wise is so so similar to the, the the approach of propaganda and lies and misinformation is is it, it's a carbon copy that, that that they used for 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 Russia absolutely you're completely right on both, on both counts I'm glad you brought up the sanctions by the way because here we are we're now talking about an 11th sanctions package. I mean, the other 10 sanctions packages were such a great success that we now have to come up with an 11th. I mean, if that is not a testimony of complete failure, both informational failure, analytical failure, failure of understanding, um, failure of approach, I can't imagine what is. But that apparently is what we're doing. So, I mean, you know, they, they, they get this wrong all all the time, and yet they come back and do the same thing, except they don't do the same thing, because what they do is they do more and more recklessly and more dangerously of the same thing. So, you know, firstly it was going to be javelins and stingers that were going to win the war, then it was going to be M777s, then it was going to be high-mass missiles, then it was going to be self-propelled guns, then it was going to be tanks, now the F-16s are on the horizon. And the talk now is, by the way, that the F-16s are going to be there by the end of August. So what kind of condition they're going to be in? Who's going to fly them? I don't know. And by the way, you know, just to say, there are some people out there, Michael Rubin, for example, who's an arch neocon in the United States, who's talking about supplying Ukraine with nuclear weapons. I mean, that gives you when I when we talk about on these programs the escalatory escalator and about these guys having no reverse gear and about being prepared to go to the ultimate point. Well, there you have it. I mean, there you see it. And apparently they're insisting that the F-16s that be supplied to Ukraine have the facility to drop nuclear weapons. So that gives you some idea of how dangerous and reckless these people are. But there it is. That's the that's the mental narrative trap that they I mean these people I should say something else by the way before I go on. Some of these people, the some of these neocon people, I mean they probably believe much of this themselves. 
But there's always, and this is the thing to understand about the neocons, there's always a very high degree of cynicism about them. They, they always know that when they come along and spin stories to try to get people to cross their red lines, their self, you know, Western countries, to cross their red lines, they always know that this is only one step towards the next red line, which will be crossed as well. So, I mean, they know to some extent what they're doing. You have to read neocon publications to see this. I mean, the, 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 the cynicism that exists is, is really quite staggering. So, at some level, they're not that disconnected from reality that they don't understand what's going on. But they have no reverse gear. So, if tanks and F-16s don't work, well, then they will start demanding tactical nuclear weapons for Ukraine. I mean, I'm not saying that's going to happen. I mean, they'll first of all go for East European troops. If that doesn't work, maybe that'll be the next stage. And that will be the decision which Western leaders will eventually come to. And that will be the decisive one. I mean, do they go ahead with that? Do they go ahead and provide an utterly reckless and irresponsible government that does things that even the New York Times says American officials consider crazy? Do, do they support the, that government in doing these kind of things, supplying it with nuclear weapons and that kind of stuff in violation of the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty? Or do Western leaders finally say enough? We'll see. Yeah, I don't even know how that would work. Just even talking about the tactical nukes to Ukraine is, I mean, yeah, that's that's a whole new world. Yeah, it's a whole new world if if that's if that's brought up. I'm not even saying if that's if that's uh, uh, actually decided on by the Biden White House, but even if it's considered, even if it's brought up as a talking point, I think we've entered a whole new different. Uh, reality. Well, it is. It is. It interesting part about all of this, real, real quick. The interesting part about all of this is we're always talking about the collective West's escalation. No one ever talks about what Russia can do. We always talk about, oh, well, the collective West are going to attack Crimea. The collective West are going to give nukes to Ukraine. No one ever. The neocons never ever talk about, yeah, but if we attack Crimea, what does Russia do? Or if we give collective. If we give nukes, tactical nukes to Ukraine, well, what does Russia do? They never consider that. No, of course not. That's exactly, that's exactly right, because it's always taken as axiomatic that the Russians are not just weak, but that they're always bluffing. So you can call this bluff endlessly and nothing will happen, which is absurd because we are in a war. <laughs> the, Russians call, you know, the Russians weren't bluffing. They said they had red lines and would enforce them. And they are enforcing them, which is, I think, a point people just don't seem to get, actually. It's, again, remarkable the extent to which the narrative has been manipulated to obscure this. And, of course, yes, we've, you know, sent dribbles of weapons to Ukraine. We sent triple howitzers and HIMARS missiles and all those sort of things. But, of course, it's not true that the Russians have simply sat on their hands and not responded. What they have done is they've built up their armed forces. They've mobilized 300,000 men. They've Apparently, they've had another 117,000 people volunteering to join the military. 
Um, according to Shoigu, another 13,000 volunteered to join the military just this month already. So, I mean, you know, it's, it's uh, not true that the Russians are not prepared to escalate. And, of course, if we're talking about nuclear weapons, well, then we're in an entirely different situation again. We are in a position where um, the Russians, I mean, will definitely respond to that. I mean, nobody should be in any doubt about this. At the, right at the outset of the war, Putin made it clear that, you know, beyond any red line, the line about um, nuclear weapons in Ukraine for the Russians is a totally unacceptable one. Is it interesting, by the way, that we've been hearing for months, years in fact now, about how the Russians might use nuclear weapons in Ukraine? We've said it many times on these programmes. When they talk about the Russians using nuclear weapons to Ukraine, you can be sure that at the back of their minds they were thinking all along about their side, our side, if you like, Ukraine using nuclear weapons in Ukraine. And you see, as night follows day, that talk has now come out into the open. Yeah, these people are crazy. Absolutely crazy, reckless. Yeah, they, okay. We'll, we'll wrap it up there, but I think that's, the, that's, that, that's where we're heading. And, um, you know, once, once that's put on the table... Security guarantees, Eastern European troops, Polish troops in Ukraine. Once we get to the tactical nuke uh, talking point, that, that's when I'm very, I'm very uh, curious, terrified as to what people like Olaf Scholz or Macron will say to that. Yes, indeed. I absolutely, I completely agree. I mean, you know, this is, this is the final, I mean, this is the final point of decision. I mean, I, I, I'm going to say this straight away. I mean, I've been looking at the polling data from Poland especially, and the Polish people overwhelmingly do not want their army to go into Ukraine. I mean, it's... So we might be closer to that point than people realise. Because if this offensive fails, when this offensive fails, then, of course, the F-16s will come, but the Pentagon is already saying that's not going to be a game-changer. So, what happens then? What do the neocons do? American boots on the ground? There might be problems with that. But tactical nuclear weapons to Ukraine? I mean, that might be their, that might be their, their solution to this. You, you know, uh, just to wrap it up again, this is a, this is a longer video, but uh, just to wrap it up, Lavrov made a statement a while back where he was addressing the United States and he said, if you continue to escalate towards this path, I guess he understood the, the tactical nukes were, were, were being discussed in certain circles. Um, Lavrov said that uh, in this war, the, the, the US, US soil will not, be, will not be excluded, will not be spared from, from this conflict if you continue down this path. So I think that, that um, the American people will, will also be presented with, with, uh, with escalation if, if what, what I want to say, if, if the thought from the neocons is, yeah, you know, we can't pass, we can't get away with U.S. boots on the grounds in Ukraine, but we can, we can sneak in the tactical nukes because American citizens will just be like, yeah, that's far away, so it's not going to affect us, tactical nukes. 5,000 uh, miles away is not going to affect us. I think Lavrov was sending the message, 
don't don't think that that you can you know um, sell that to to your citizens. Absolutely. I mean, it's a crazy idea. Can I say first of all, giving nuclear weapons to Ukraine, um, which would use, which is you know quite likely to use them. I mean, far more likely than Russia is. Um, the the Russians will not see that as a nuclear attack by Ukraine. They will see that as a nuclear attack on them by the collective West, which gave Ukraine those nuclear weapons. And we're talking about tactical nuclear weapons. But in that case, how can one prevent this escalating into an all-out nuclear exchange? There have been any number of military um, game there's been game planning of this, you know, using nuclear weapons um, in conflicts. And the invariable consequence, apparently, of all of these games, I mean, I haven't, war games, I haven't obviously participated in this, but this is what I've heard, is that the process of escalation very rapidly becomes uncontrollable. And, of course, when I say uncontrollable, that means an all-out nuclear war between superpowers... And that is a terrifying thought. I mean, humanity would, well, it might survive, but in what, in what shape? I mean, nobody should be thinking about these things. They should be sitting down and talking. And, well, the neocons will resist that, of course, every inch of the way. All right, we'll uh, leave it there. The Duran.locals.com, we are on Rumble, Odyssey, but shoot... Rockfin and Telegram and go to the Durant shop. 10% off. Use the code. Good day. Take care.